ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. Has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and I'm very happy to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down the road and tells us all about his history in the wrestling business. Without any further ado, let's go to the man himself, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, today we're going back to one of your favorite subjects, if I may say so. I'm going to guess on this because I hear the joy in your voice whenever we talk about it. We're going back to the Bahamas today. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of Bahamas today, which we have not done on a regular stud cast, and uh, we've done it in great detail on the super stud cast. Uh, but uh, it's kind of in this time frame in which we're in at this point, and uh so we're going to do a little bit of it because you're right. I love it. I mean, I think it's one of the craziest stories in wrestling probably. And for the guys that have been there and uh, saw it and were a part of it, uh, they just, uh, I'm sure they're kind of like me. They tell, they must tell their own version of the Bahamas story quite often because it's really an unusual and unique place to, to have wrestled. And of course, you don't just have a history there, but your family has a history there because Lester actually was running the Bahamas at this time. That's correct. He was, and uh, he was working in Florida. He had been there since the mid-60s uh, and was really close with Eddie. I think possibly, and I'm not sure about this, Brian, but I believe he probably owned a little bit of that Florida territory at that point. And uh, he was he was kind of a... There were so many people working in Florida at that point. You've got Milo in Orlando, and you have uh, Pat O'Hara in the Fort Myers area. Uh, you had these local promoters, a couple of local promoters, and there's no place for Lester to actually have opportunity to promote and do any business for himself. And he kind of gets looking a little east of the coast there at, um, at Nassau and Freeport in the Bahamas. And thinking, you know, there's no wrestling in the Caribbean. I don't believe at this point there is any wrestling anywhere in the Caribbean. Later on, he's going to move his operation to San Juan and uh, start working a little bit out of Puerto Rico. But he'll be one of the first, maybe the first, to ever run in Puerto Rico. So uh, Lester's kind of looking east. Uh, he's He's got an airplane, a pretty nice little King Air airplane that he flies. He's been flying before coming to Florida. He wrestled for my granddad, Roy, 
who was his brother, and Nick Goulas in Nashville and flew that plane an absolutely ridiculous amount of hours in the state of Tennessee in order to accommodate all their live television programs and get guys there in all the different cities in that part of the country. He would fly them from one TV to another TV on Saturdays. And during the week, he would fly to a lot of the towns that he was actually wrestling in. So he takes the same process to Florida. For a while there, they don't run the Bahamas. And then Lester says, let's take a shot at the Bahamas. And boy, he really picks a heck of a place. Uh, I don't know if he did a whole lot of homework before he actually decided that this is where he wanted to go. But there's only one facility there. It's called Nassau Sports Stadium. It's a small little place, about uh, twice the size of a regular basketball court. And it's not pretty. It sits kind of by itself. Uh, It's got a wall about 10 feet tall around the exterior part of it. Uh, And the front part where you enter, it's... It's so kind of unique. You enter, you enter and buy your ticket through a pool hall. So you come through the pool hall. They stand in line in the pool hall. They enter into the Nassau Stadium, it's called. In the back, they've got a couple of dressing rooms. They're pretty spartan, to, pre, to, to put it at, 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 at its best. Uh, there are just old mattresses there with uh, cotton hanging out of them, and there's no showers there's no air conditioning, uh, and in the Bahamas, it's pretty warm, pretty much year-round. So it's a very small place. They've got bleachers down two sides. They have ringside chairs, and that's just about what you have in that facility. On one side of that that uh, stadium is a big old oak tree, and on the opposite side of the stadium is a a house and a person's garage, a pretty good-sized garage. And other than that, it sits in a vacant area by itself. And it's it's really – the Bahamas is a, an interesting place at this point in time. It's, it's changed dramatically, I'm sure. But back in these days, we're talking about 1971, there's not much money in the Bahamas. Uh, the tourism industry is not nearly like it is nowadays. There are no big hotels like there are there now. It's a small little area in which a few tourists go to. Cruise ships are not, you don't have cruise ships. There's a non-entity in Florida at that point in 71, especially uh, down uh, that accommodate into the Bahamas. So it's kind of a strange little area to go. Not much happening over there, not much money over there. So the fans there can't pay a whole lot of money. So that's what makes this Bahamas so interesting is is because the fans want to get inside. They love their wrestling. They want to see it, but they have no way to pay to get in. And that's kind of where this story all starts with the Bahamas. And uh, it's really interesting that, you know, it's an old stadium. It's a it's an older facility, even when it's brand new. When he opens it up, a guy named Charlie owns it, and he runs it. It's his pool hall in the front. Pool hall stays open quite a bit, obviously, during the course of the week. But only on Saturday nights, that's when they were running it, did they go into the Bahamas on Saturday. And he opens that back part for wrestling. Now, oddly enough, they had a world championship boxing match there, and 
And uh, I think you're familiar with it. I mean, uh, Ali fights, I think, is Trevor Burbick for the World Boxing Championship yeah. in the same stadium. And uh, it's kind of a rinky-dink stadium, isn't it? But it's what happens during the matches and uh, and the course of what happens with people trying to get in for free that make this really an interesting thing. Uh, the gentleman named Charlie, in fact, the first night I go there, he's talking to me just about the time the matches are going to start, and he's carrying a pool cue. Now, the front part of the, the where you enter the Coliseum or enter the sports stadium is is a pool pool hall. So it's a cutoff cue stick, and I'm I'm looking at it while he's talking. He's talking about mate, you know, these guys are good people here, and he's giving me a story about how long he's run it and that type of thing. And uh, finally, I ask him, I can't help, I say, uh, what what's the what's the deal with the pool cue? And he goes, he goes, oh, I use that, you know, I, I I'm going to need it tonight, you know, and I, so. I didn't ask him why he needed that, you know, but I got to thinking, you know, and I said, well, you know, is that just a regular pool? No, no, it's got lead. It's got lead. It's been, the, the middle has been removed and it's been filled with lead. So, you know, he, and he taps it on the concrete a couple of times and I'm like, wow, you know, it sounds like a, like a pretty good tool right there. And uh, so the bell rings about that time. And when the bell rings, out of the clear blue, a, a guy gets thrown over the wall from outside the arena and almost lands on top of me. He lands on the ground on his head in front of me. And Charlie, a guy gets up to run off, and Charlie takes a pool cue and smacks him in the side of the head with it. And he doesn't even go down. He kind of runs like a cartoon. He gets hit in the head, and he runs sideways. His body leans over to where it's like, gosh, he's going to fall. And then he straightens back up, and he disappears in the crowd. Well, the crowd's only about half full. And uh, so I'm thinking, you know, well, it's not going to be a very good crowd here. And so as soon as that guy comes over the wall, the bell has rung. There starts to be bodies coming from everywhere, all around that stadium. People are being thrown into the into the arena, and uh, I'd never seen anything like that before. In fact, I'm standing next to a bleacher that's empty, got no people on it yet, and I climb up on that bleacher and look over the wall, and there must be three, four, five hundred guys outside, and they're putting their hands together and guys are stepping into their hands. They get a guy on each side and they just shoot them over this 10 foot wall and they don't know how they're going to land. They don't care where they're going to land. They're just getting thrown in there into the, into the facility for free. So, uh, she's about 10 minutes later. There's so many bodies come over the wall and, Charlie, the guy that's running the place, I mean, he's smacking them as hard as he can and as fast as he can, but he can't stop it. There are just too many, too many coming from too many places. The front of the facility, the back of the facility, over the sides, it's like the entire stadium is just being, it's just being bombarded by human beings, you know, kind of a crazy situation, but it was, it was like that's the way things were there. So I'm actually in the first match. I'm standing watching, and I'm in the first match. And they ring the bell. After I climb up, look on the bleachers, look over into the outside to see what's going on, I go down to the ring. 
I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I find out within the first 10 minutes of the match, the first time I threw a punch, as a matter of fact, the entire crowd, it's like somebody, it's like one of those old Batman movies uh, and the Batman series back in the 60s that used to be on TV where they throw up the little sign that says, Beast, boom, bah, they'd make this noise in the Batman thing. And uh, it was like the crowd, there was somebody back there in the back holding up this giant sign that would say, next punch is a bis. And they, all, they would all do the same sound. It was like they were choreographed. Uh, now the place is almost full. Uh, they've probably thrown 200 people, 300 people over the wall, and the facility's getting pretty full at this point. And they start bis booming and bah, and they start making these noises during the comeback. And I'm like shocked by all this. It's like, what in the heck is all this about? I'd never been there to a place like that. I've never been to any place else in the world in which the crowd seems to be choreographed and their responses all seem to be the same at the same time. That is pretty crazy because, you know, wrestlers are used to that noise when you throw a punch and you hear, I don't even know how to do it, but the crowd will all together collectively go like, whoosh, or, you know, whatever the sound will be. You've heard that many times throughout your career. To actually have them collectively in unison making that noise must have been a pretty wild experience in the ring. It was a pretty wild experience. And then, you know, it's my first time there. So there's a lot of things that go on here that I'm not aware of. And nobody goes and tells me about it on my way over. You know, I fly over in, the, in Lester's little plane, in his private plane. And, you know, nobody says, you, you're not going to, here's what to expect over here, Ron. So all of this is the kind of shocking to me. It's like, gosh, what are these people doing? Why are they making this noise? And then... I go back and and I win the match and and oddly enough my dad is wrestling that same night and uh, he's flown in there too and he's not been there ever either and he goes out and he's actually wrestling against uh, in the second match against uh, Bunk Harris who was called the Baby Blimp uh, Two Ton Harris yeah. he had all of these names he was one of the first fat wrestlers that I can remember prior to Haystacks, I guess, prior to, to some of the guys that came along later, uh, he was a 300-plus guy, uh, maybe only 5'10", and, you know, obviously fat. And so I, I see my dad and him wrestling, and, and I don't know what's going on. Uh, Lester has two sons that wrestle. One of them is there that night as well, his son named Roy Lee. And Roy Lee's standing by me. And I'm watching the match with Dad and Baby Blimp. And in the match, Blimp slams Dad. The ring is so hard there. It's the one of the hardest rings I've ever seen in my life. And I had, when I got there, walked around in the ring and felt of it. I was like, this is like concrete. I mean, you know, and then I got out and looked underneath and sure enough, that's what that it is. It's concrete blocks stacked on top of each other and plywood put on top of it. And there has no spring to it at all. It's a great boxing ring. It works fine for boxing and for Ali's fight, I'm sure. But it's not a wrestling type ring. And I see Bunk slam my dad and I'm like, oh, gosh, that had to hurt. And Bunk covers him. Now. 
you know, the fans there are crazy. They they don't they're not going to let a heel win the match without having some type of riot or that heel having a problem. Well, I wasn't aware of that. But when Bunk slams my dad, somebody had buzzed my dad about it that, you know, you, know, you can scare the hell out of Bunk if you want to tonight. So when Bunk goes down to cover him and the referee gets to the count of two, dad puts his arms around Bunk's back and holds him on top of him. And Bunk starts screaming. He's been there before. He screams, no, no, I can hear him. You know, and I'm like, what the hell is he doing? And uh, and Dad's holding him, and he's, he almost picks Dad's back up off the mat and trying to get away from him so that the referee can't count the three count. And when he gets up, Dad lets him go, and Dad gets up, and Dad's kind of smiling, you know, and Bunk goes, you nuts. You know, they'll kill me. They'll kill me, he says, right? And I'm thinking, who's he talking about killing him? Well, the deal is the fans are so crazy there that if a heel ever won a match, they're going to come to get him. They're going to come after him, and uh, he may not make it to the dressing room. If he does, he's really lucky. So Dad does it to him again. At about two minutes later, he gets in a situation where he puts Bunk on top again, and he he almost is able to hold him down to Bunk gets counted out. Well, Bunk's pretty ready to go home at that point. He's like, you know, I can tell he's mad. He's, he he thinks, he's thinking, you don't know this place, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, after I found out more about it, I understand why he was so concerned and why he was fighting like that to get away. But uh, that, that made for an odd match, you know, and the fans are watching and they're wondering, you know, what's really going on. And that happens a whole lot when you're wrestling in the Bahamas back in these days. Uh, the, you did not. The fans were so strange. Uh, stuff that went on the ring, inside the ring, was strange because I guess it's because it's outside the United States. And I think when the wrestlers went in there each week, uh, some of the crew flew in commercial flights. The others rode in on Lester's private plane. And when you wrestled outside the country, you felt like, you know, you didn't have to wrestle the same type of style. You didn't have to be so serious and so concerned about about your match and the quality of the match. Guys wanted to play. I think that's it. They kind of got a little play. Uh, we're we're kind of on vacation here. We're wrestling in another country, and uh, let's have some fun. And so there was a different mindset from the wrestlers, and that creates a different mindset in the crowd. And so it makes it just a crazy place to work. Uh, so this match goes on. They have a pretty decent match, Dad and Bunk. Uh, I think Roy wrestles that night against someone. But I know that in the main event, there's a guy named the Gladiator. Now, he's a baby face who's really gotten over in Florida. He's been there for two years, I think, around two years, had tremendous success there, uh, been on top. Threw him some big-time money. Uh, I can't remember his name, and I don't know. Uh, I'm just coming there, and this is the only time I ever saw him wrestle uh, was in the Bahamas. Somehow, I guess they, he had already left. They brought him back for this particular night or whatever. I didn't get an opportunity to be introduced to him. He's a babyface, and he's wrestling some. Maybe it's like Dusty Rhodes and, and him in the main event, and Dusty's the heel. Uh, anyway, the rip, the bell rings, and they go to 
go to the ring. And before they 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 they, they do the, the introductions, they introduce Dusty, they introduce the Gladiator. Uh, they come to the middle of the ring. They the referee checks them out, and he's about to release them to go back to their corners and ring the bell. They ring the bell, bang. They ring the bell, and uh, somebody outside. Now, this is a coral island, so they've got these big, heavy, hard, very hard coral rocks. Somebody on the outside of the arena that just tosses a big one about the size of a, between around the softball size, uh, a rock. And it comes over the wall. I see it fly over the wall. And it's like the guy couldn't have aimed it any better. It comes right down and hits the gladiator in the top of his head. The bell is just rung and he goes down face first, wham, on the mat. <laughs> it's like, I was like, Oh my gosh, man! I've never seen anything like that. The crowd just, you know, they're, 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 there's not even an uh or any type of sound out of it. So it leads me to believe, and thinking back on it, that that may have happened two or three times before, and that they were kind of accustomed. To it. But when he's laying there on his belly, Stu Schwartz is the referee, and Stu looks at Dusty, and Dusty looks at Stu, and, and Stu says. Cover him. You know, I can read his lips. He's saying, cover him, cover him. And Dusty goes with his head, he shakes. No, no way. No, I'm not going to cover him. So he's laying there and they're just looking at each other. And finally, Stu goes over and picks up his arm and he drops it and it just falls on the mat. He's out cold. And he's like, oh, I can see Stu's concerned now. You know, what are we going to do here? So Stu motions back toward the dressing room where me and a couple of other guys, almost everybody was outside the dressing room because it's too hot to be in the dressing room. So you stood outside because you got a little bit of breeze. And so we go down there and we pick him up and we carry him back to the dressing room. He's finished. He's out cold. Uh, he's out for probably two more minutes before he comes to. And then they come in. Lester comes in and he goes, well, somebody's got to take his place. So I was still dressed. I'd still just hanging out there because it's too hot to put your clothes on. You got no place to shower. So I volunteered. I said, I'll wrestle. I'll go. I'll go back in, do a second one. And he says, go on, go to the ring. So uh, I said, well, what are we going to do? And he says, it don't make any difference. <laughs> you know, just go to the ring. Dusty ain't going to beat you. <laughs> you know, so it's one of those deals. So I go in and I wrestle. I wrestle the gladiators match with Dusty, Dusty and I, and uh, and then uh, you know he he puts me over. I beat him in the middle, and uh, you know as soon as the match is over, though the, the part that really gets me is is the match ends and I'm standing in the ring. Dusty's gone. He gets out. He goes to the dressing room, and. Now it's not just one rock that comes over the walls. It's all those guys outside that couldn't get pitched over the walls inside. They start throwing rocks. And they, I mean, the rocks are just coming from everywhere. Uh, Stu jumps out and goes underneath the ring. I don't even see where he goes. And I'm standing in the ring, and I look at the ringsiders. 
everybody that's in the bleachers, they back up next to the wall, try to get their backs up to the wall so that they can't get hit in the head by a rock. And the rocks are just landing in the ring and all on the ground and the concrete and in the chair. Those people sitting ringside take their chairs and hold them up over their heads to protect them from getting the same treatment that the gladiator got so that they don't get themselves knocked out. And uh, I'm just standing there like a goof in the middle of the ring. Rocks are hitting all around me. Lucky that I didn't get hit. And finally, Stu reaches up and grabs me by the ankle. I look down at him, and he says, down here, ignorant. Come on, stupid, down here. So I get out, get underneath the ring. It's like the rock, the little rock, uh, the, the, the rock, uh, I guess you'd call it a meteorite shower. The little meteorite shower lasts about 30 seconds. They run out of rocks, and everybody puts their chairs down, the ringsiders and the people in the stands, and, and they file out the front where the pool hall is. And it, to me, it was like, goodness gracious, what an experience to see that type of thing. I'd never been any place that had, had anything like that. And I've never been in the history of all my years in the business ever to another place that could compare with how crazy they are in the Bahamas. Now, this is just a little taste of the Bahamas. Uh, and it's just a, it's a, it was an experience to be a wrestler and to wrestle there. What did your father have to say about his experience wrestling in the Bahamas? And where was the craziest place in terms of crowd he had worked? Well, he, he'd not been outside the United States very much himself. Uh, this was my first experience being outside the United States. I don't know that he had ever, he might've wrestled in Canada. Uh, but I don't think he had ever wrestled in Mexico. I know he had not gone to Australia at this point. He had never gone to Australia. He had also never gone to uh, Japan or anything like that. So, you know, and, and there were a lot of back, wrestlers back in the 60s and 70s that didn't make these trips to foreign countries. Uh, and when you did, you had to expect a different style at the very least, that wrestlers are going to wrestle a different style. Uh, on this particular card, that's not the case. Because they're all from America. They're all from Tampa. The entire crew's from Tampa. but And they're all Americans, basically. But you could get into really bad situations. Uh, later on, as time goes by here, when we get to talking about San Juan, Puerto Rico, that's an example of where the crowds are so riotous that uh, dangerous. They're just extremely dangerous to wrestle, more so than even the Bahamas. It's a more dangerous place than the Bahamas, but... Uh, dad, uh, dad was kind of like me. His first question to Lester when we started home was, uh, what's the story with the wall? I mean, how, why is it that something can't be done to keep half the crowd from being pitched into the arena? You know, we all laugh about it on the way home, you know, because it's, you know, you've never seen that kind of thing before. I mean, you had to laugh about it. It was, it was, if not humorous, it was ridiculous. And so we asked Lester, you know, what, 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 how can you stop that? Is there anything you can do to stop that? And, uh, you know, later on, we'll probably talk about the Bahamas again. And we'll talk a little bit about how Lester tries to stop that. And it's just a, an amazing place to go and wrestle in that day and time. I'm really in my first year. It's, it makes it even stranger when you see it. 
and you've not been around wrestling very long, and you find out that once you leave the country, uh, you're not going to have the same product. You're not usually going to be wrestling the same type of talent. And you really don't know what to expect. Rings are going to be as hard as hard as concrete, like this ring is. Uh, and it not only is it hard, the average ring, a television ring, was 16 feet by 16 feet. They were doing them in studios. And you didn't want to take up your whole seating area in a small television studio. And for many years, they made a 16 by 16 foot wrestling ring, and you used that in studios. It was built also only about two and a half feet off the floor. It was very low because you had the ring lights above it. You didn't have room to slam people. A guy my height, I'd get guys up in the lights if I wasn't careful. So they made those rings low and they made them 16 square foot. This ring had to be 24 feet square. It was the biggest wrestling ring I think I was ever in. It was just, when you... I, I kidded when I well, we did a crisscross in my first match, uh, and we crisscrossed twice. And I kidded the guy when we got back to the dressing room. I said, uh, you know, I almost blew up on those crisscrosses because <laughs> the ring is just so monstrous and so darn hard. So you never know what to expect when you wrestle in other countries. But this experience in the Bahamas is pretty much really unique. We will continue with more of the Studcast right after this word about the next Super Studcast. Your attention, Studcast fans and Super Studcast fans. The three-hour Super Studcast are like classical audio books about wrestling history written by a great storyteller. There are now five Super Studcasts available. Andre the Giant, Crazy Ron Wright, Caribbean Chaos, Robert Fuller Live, and WWE Hall of Famer Bullet Bob Armstrong. Each three-hour spectacular is only $2.99 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The next Super Studcast is out Tuesday, June 12th, and the stud takes us across the Pacific Ocean to the land of the rising sun, Japan. 1983 is the year, and the stud spends a month in the biggest tag team tournament in the world. His partner is the fantastic young star Barry Windham, son of legend Blackjack Mulligan. They'll compete against fabulous teams like the only brothers to ever win the World Heavyweight Championship, Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk, Brutal Bruiser Brody and Stan Hansen, Mexico's favorite masked brothers, Mill and Dos Mascaros, and many famous Japanese teams too. The stud will have awesome great stories about his match with Giant Baba, four inches taller than the stud, and an evening partying with world champ Ric Flair and the Funks. This three-hour extravaganza will make you feel as if you were there on this phenomenal tour yourself at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Don't forget, Tuesday, June 12th, it's the start of an unforgettable ride into wrestling history. There you hear it, of course, the Super Studcast and the rest of the story Always available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only, $2.99. And, of course, the next big one, Super Studcast number six, Japan, will debut on Tuesday, June 12th. But, of course, you can get it at any time. Once again, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More information about that at the end of the program. But, you know, usually we do at least two questions here on the show, Ron. We have three this week. Are you ready for an extra question? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. I love the questions. Uh, we have some great fans, and they are very knowledgeable, and I look forward to always the questions. I'm thankful you said yes, because if you said no, I really don't know what we would do with a portion of this show. But here's question one, and it is from Michael Barr in Slocum, Alabama. When Southeastern moved into Birmingham, did it make business better? And what influence did that move have on Southeastern and later Continental Wrestling? Uh, good question. Uh, well, let's let's talk since he's talking Birmingham. Let's let's kind of get a little bit of history. Give the fans a little bit of Birmingham's history. Birmingham has been a tremendous wrestling city from the 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, when Roy went to Tennessee and started to develop the Tennessee Territory, uh, Birmingham was obviously one of his first cities that he had his eyes on. He set up in a little town called Dyersburg, just north of Memphis. Uh, he ran Memphis. He, he, he real quickly established Nashville. Uh, then his, probably his third town he established was Birmingham because it's in the northern part of Alabama. It's not too far from Nash from Memphis and from Nashville. Uh, then later on, other promoters wanted to establish wrestling in, in Knoxville. That was the Kazanas. And, uh, and then uh, Harry Thornton in, in Chattanooga. So, you know, there's your big cities in, Chatt in Tennessee, and there's Birmingham, which is your major city in Alabama. And they do tremendous business there, even back in the 30s and 40s before television. When television comes along and the TV stations get cranked up and, and Roy and, and he, he, he meets, of all people, Nick Goulas is from Birmingham. That's how Roy meets Nick is because he's beginning to have all these major markets opened up and he doesn't have anybody to be local promoters and help him with putting out posters. Prior to wrestling being on television, posters were a great way of advertising your product. And uh, that didn't end really until probably into the 70s. I used posters even into the 70s, and I did have television wrestling. But in back in those days, you needed someone to put those posters out, and you needed someone on the ground in these cities to be able to help you to promote the matches so that the fans knew that you were in a building and where you were, what night of the week you were there. And that's how you built wrestling back in those days. It was word of mouth. You don't have a television which reaches a mass of people, so you've got a card in a window somewhere, and somebody stands there and takes the time to read that card, and they go, geez, look at that. There's wrestling down here at Bowell Auditorium. That's right downtown in Birmingham well, on a Monday night. And then they go. And the way you build your business back in the early days, the 30s and the 40s, uh, was the, they would, the, those fans would come. And they would pay their money, and they would enjoy it. If they liked it, they went on and said, I'm going back next Monday. And not only did they do that, they, it was word of mouth. They would tell their friend next door or somebody that uh, they knew was into sports and say, hey, you need to go to wrestling down here. It's on every Monday. So you really had to have a, your day of the week that was your wrestling day in every city. Uh, Memphis happened to be on a Monday. And Birmingham happened to be on a Monday. So you've got two of their major towns running on Mondays in the Tennessee Territory. Uh, Nick does a great job 
good enough job that Roy eventually takes him to Nashville and they put the major office in Nashville rather than Dyersburg, Tennessee. It evolves to be in Nashville where it's more, that's more central to all the state anyway. It's in the center of the state of Tennessee. Uh, you've got Louisville. He used to operate in Louisville, Kentucky, north of Nashville. And to the south, about the same distance to the south, you have Birmingham. You've got Huntsville, Alabama. You've got all different types of sizes of cities. And uh, Birmingham is in a very great location, and it's done great business from 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 70s. Now, in 19, in the late 70s, Roy is, is, is gone, basically. He's gone uh, and he left behind his dad, who is working with Jerry Jarrett, is in that Nashville, I mean, in that Memphis and uh, uh, Louisville area. He has some towns that he runs. Uh, Nick runs Nashville. He runs Birmingham. Uh, over in the eastern part of Tennessee, you've got Knoxville run by the Kazanas. Uh, you've got Rassing that the Tennessee Territory owned the Tri-Cities, which is in the very extreme northeast part of Tennessee. Uh, that's uh, Kingsport, Johnson City, Bristol, Tennessee. Uh, so you've got a lot of activity going on, but Birmingham is a great town. Uh, Nick's baby, so to speak. Nick came from there. He always wanted Birmingham to do well. He was always in control of Birmingham. Birmingham like a lot of Nick's territory, Nick's part of the Tennessee territory is starting to fade. Nick is getting up in age. He doesn't have great talent. He tries to push his son, George, which I think was a mistake. George was just not capable of being the talent in the ring that, that's going to carry the load, and he's not going to draw those big crowds. So Birmingham starts to dwindle. We have gone from Knoxville in 1978. We go down and I go down and, and buy basically Gulf Coast Wrestling from the fields. And the, we establish the Gulf Coast once again. We grow it into the early 80s. 1981, we talked to Nick about buying Birmingham. Uh, if we'd have done this 10 years earlier in 71, that he would have laughed us out of the out of the out of his office, uh, but uh, I go in into Nashville and have the conversation, and I basically make him an offer for Birmingham. Uh, it's a fairly decent offer, and uh, he takes it. So what happens then is all of a sudden, for the first time, Birmingham, Alabama, is no longer run by Tennessee promotion. It's run by us. Uh, which we're southeastern at that point. We have not become continental. We're still southeastern wrestling, but it's the southern division. It's based out of Pensacola. Uh, Birmingham's two and a half, two and a two and a half, two hundred fifty miles basically from Pensacola, so it's four hours away. So we we're in a position to run it. Uh, it's a big city. Uh, we find this television station. We take the TV. Bert, Nick is on a a basically a UHF television. We go on Channel 6 there, which is the big hoss in Birmingham. Uh, we take a horrible time slot, in my opinion. Uh, they, they have nothing available for us like I would like to have, but they, they put us on at midnight on a Saturday night. 
I figure that it's not going to draw. I don't, I'm not happy with the time slot, but it's such a hoss of a station. It, it goes out 120 miles in all directions. So it gives you a lot of opportunity to run things other than Birmingham. So it made it worthwhile to do that. Uh, we go in and we start running it and that, that sucker goes, it goes crazy again. It becomes a, the old Birmingham again within about three or four months. We take it from being a quarter full uh, to three quarters to full. And uh, within a year we're selling out uh, just like Birmingham has done for many, many years. So it was a great business. It was a great business deal for us. It made the business better as this gentleman's question was about. It definitely made that business Southeastern better and uh, and it had a great influence on what we were doing because it gave us another major market to be in every week. And you needed those big towns in order to give your guys those big payoffs. And once you can get those guys with the big payoffs and you got enough big towns, you've got that big week that they're going to have. And they're going to be happy campers and you're going to be able to get pretty much the wrestlers that you want to get. Now, a couple years down the road, between 81 and 85, in 85, we changed that name to Continental. And at that point, Vince is starting to infiltrate territories around the country. And we, and he has a great wrestling pr- production. Uh, his, his wrestling is not the greatest, and his wrestlers sometimes aren't the greatest still, but his wrestling production is first class. So when we see him start to looking at Alabama, I say, guys, we need to start producing our program in a major arena. We need to do it early in the week. We'll post-produce it. In other words, we're hiring a company to come in with six or eight cameras like Vince had and film from a big arena, which is Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham. We film on Monday night. They have three days to post-produce it and deliver it to all of our markets. Uh, And that's where we really... That's where it really picked up our business even more, and it made Birmingham even more influential into the entire territory because now it's not just your Monday night town in one of your major cities. It's your television product, and it made that such a great show. Uh, We got Gordon. uh, We'd had Charlie for many, many years who did a spectacular job for us, was fabulous. Uh, we put Gordon in there because he was a different face and we wanted to change the name of the company. It made sense to change maybe the commentator and that whole thing just really rocketed it for us. And, uh, it did very, very well. So I hope that's, uh, the gentleman from Alabama's, uh, answer here. Uh, so it certainly, it did affect everything we did. It was an, it was a great decision for us. We didn't pay more than it was worth. Uh, and I knew that, but a lot of people said Birmingham's dead. It's kind of like when I bought Nashville, Nashville will never be worth the kind of money I paid for it. Turned out to be worth, uh, geez, a hundred times what I paid for it probably. So you're talking about you when you bought Nashville and hockey. Yeah. And when I went to Knoxville with Southeastern and started Southeastern, uh, Knoxville was not a booming territory. In fact, it was a city. It really wasn't even a territory. So when I bought that from John Kazana, a lot of people said, geez, you, you paid $150,000 for a town. You know, it was a big joke to him, but 
I looked at Knoxville as being much more than a town. I saw it as being a part of the country in which there were cities that had television stations that nobody was on. And I could expand and create myself my own territory, not just own a town, but own a business and a company. And that's what basically I was able to do there. We took Birmingham here, added it to our already existing territory, and then eventually, a couple of years down the road, we put our television, made our television live there, and it just, uh, it really worked well for us. When people talk about the different territories, they'll, they'll usually name a specific town, Dallas, Atlanta, New York, et cetera, et cetera. With your territory, I hear three different towns. I'll hear people say Pensacola, or they'll say Birmingham, or they'll say Mobile. What would you say? Uh, well, obviously, those were the biggest cities. And, uh, you know, that's that's not very big cities when you actually talk about it. And you're looking at uh, other territories, Florida, as an example. Just take Florida as an example. And you've got Tampa, you've got Miami, you've got Jacksonville, you've got Fort Myers, you got Tallahassee, you got Fort Lauderdale. I mean, uh, Orlando, it, you've got a lot of major markets there. Uh, we're in a part of the country in which there's pop population is a lot less than Florida, obviously, and not as many big markets. Birmingham is a cog in that wheel. It's an important big city market for us, and we need to do good business in there. But one of the best towns in, in southeastern and, and as continental develops later on, we expand back into Tennessee, and we create a much bigger market by picking up towns. We pick up Knoxville and Chattanooga. And, uh, we pick up other towns that we never had before, Tallahassee and a lot of other places. So we're going to grow back in size. But, uh, you know, we uh, we managed to, to do well. Those three cities were big. But that we had the little Dothan, Alabama, in my opinion, one of the best towns in America. That little son of a gun is, is 80,000 to 100,000 people and drawing five, 6,000 fans per week, every, every Saturday night. So, you know, that had to be a major town. We considered to be a major town and uh, we tried to give them the best we could, just like we did in Mobile, Pensacola and Birmingham. You've been a part of several transactions involving selling or purchasing wrestling promotions. When it comes to purchasing the South End, when it comes to purchasing Alabama and Pensacola from the Fields family, of course, Fields is Hatfield. Hatfield was, correct me if I'm wrong, the husband of Roy's sister, correct? That's correct. Virgil Hatfield was the the husband of Bonnie. Bonnie is uh, Roy's sister, and Virgil has three sons. And uh, instead of being Hatfields, I think they probably changed their name because of that old feud thing or whatever. <laughs> they just took the hat off of Fields, and they became the Fields brothers. And Virgil was the actual referee. He refereed matches for them for years. So the three sons wrestled, and the daddy was the referee. And uh, and they did great down there. My dad did great there before the Hatfields ever bought it from him. And when we go down there and, and pick it up, it's kind of like Birmingham. In 78, they're really on their butts down there, and they're not drawing anymore. And they, they've kind of lost their, 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 I guess, their enthusiasm, and, and, and they've lost their influence, and they've lost some of their good talent. And it's all going the wrong direction for them. And we pick a great time. I go down and talk to them and pick a great time, and they, they, they work me a good deal. And we go down there and light that sucker up. I mean, within three months, 
by six months, we take towns that are dead and not drawing 200 people to drawing three or 4,000. It's just, it's miraculous what we were able to do as quickly as we did it down there. Well, what I was going to ask you was, in terms of the transactions you've made, again, with the purchasing and the selling of wrestling companies, when it comes to purchasing a territory from your family, is it easier or harder than dealing with just another businessman in the wrestling industry? Harder. <laughs> My family is a cutthroat group, man. <laughs> you know? I would have hated to have to try to buy Birmingham. I was able, I was lucky to buy Birmingham from Nick. If I had to have done that with Roy, I, I don't think uh, I would have got it for the same price I got it from Nick. I think Roy would have probably stuck me for double that. You know, he just he had no mercy for for me being his grandson or Rob or Jimmy or, you know, uh, my family's pretty darn cutthroat of when it comes to business and and trying to trying to get what you've worked for, you, you work real hard to build these towns and to build these territories. And, uh, you don't want to give it away if you, if you're going to sell it. And, uh, you know, I was really lucky. I just happened to catch the Fields brothers at a time when Lee's focus was now on car racing. He had a racetrack in Mobile. Uh, he was, he, they raced bush cars there today. They're still in business and he owned that track and he was he was becoming more involved with racing than he was with wrestling, and I I really knew that what he what his focus was on, and it was not so difficult to, to take that wrestling, uh, and and get a good deal out of it. I have to ask you: you opened this door, you paid one fifty to Kazana for Knoxville. You said you wouldn't have been able to get as good a deal from Roy as you got from Nick when you purchased Birmingham. Would you reveal how much you paid Nick for Birmingham? Uh, 75 for Birmingham. And that was for Birmingham. But, but now you bear in mind when you do it, when you buy a city, you're basically buying the, the radius of your television range. Okay. So in the case of Birmingham, as an example, let's say you buy Birmingham, you're not just buying Birmingham. Your television is going to cover everything north to Huntsville. It's going to cover everything south almost to Montgomery. It's going to cover Tuscaloosa and Gadsden and uh, a lot of 50, 60, uh, 80, 100,000 population cities uh, that you can go and wrestle in those cities. So you don't buy just one city, you're actually buying the radius of your television coverage. So that's why it was important to me when I was going to buy it, I knew I could get on channel six. If I can get on channel six, I'm going to double my audience. Uh, I'll not only double the audience and probably just right there in Birmingham itself, but I'm going to double my audience out to a range of 120 miles from Birmingham. That's going to make a big difference in what the value is there. When I bought Knoxville, I didn't look at it as buying Knoxville for 150. I looked at it as buying a territory for 150. It's a town, but I'm going to turn it into a territory, which I was able to do. Thank goodness. With something like Nick's TV in Birmingham, what do you do? I mean, he has TV. You just slide your TV into that spot. Or once you purchase the town from Nick, what do you have to do to make sure there's a smooth transition from his enterprise to yours? It was no transition. It was basically no transition. I mean, uh, we didn't discuss it. I didn't worry about it. I knew that my program was so superior to his that 
I didn't want to transition from him to me uh, overnight. He was on up until, let's say, Saturday, the first of the month of May. And the uh, second month in May, Ron, you're on. So we didn't go and say anything. We never said anything about uh, once once we came in there as Southeastern Championship Wrestling, uh, all of a sudden, uh, if you're a wrestling fan, you must have gone, whoa, what is this? My goodness. But we were so good, and our production was so much better than his, and our talent was so much better than his at that point, that within two weeks, uh, we had people back. We got our crowd. It might drop off the first week. By the second week, they're, they're, they're going. They, wrestling fans know what they see. They are knowledgeable fans. They know what a good product is compared to a poor product. And I believe within one month, they're going, wow. I don't know what happened here, but I love it, you know, and that's exactly what it started to happen at the box office. They started proving that our product was a superior product because they started coming again. I could talk to you an entire episode about just that, and we may have to do that at some point, but we do still have two more questions and we're running out of time. Ron, this next one is from Chris Island in Montgomery, Alabama. Boy, we were just speaking about Montgomery. Do you ever plan or have you put together? A best of the stud stable DVD set. <laughs> That's a good one too. Uh, no, I have never put together. A I get stud that question stable. a lot too. By the way, Ron. Yeah, I, I've never done a stud stable uh, TV uh, DVD set. Um, uh, right now, you know, since this has been brought up and it's not out there and available as yet, but. We thought, uh, I thought basically, I never sold my programs at Continental. When when we closed up and uh, and we went away, we never sold our stuff like uh, like a lot of companies did to Vince. Uh, and I thought a lot of it had gone and disappeared. We didn't save tapes, which, you know, people must go, gosh, you're really stupid about that. And I feel stupid about that, to be quite honest with you. But... Uh, we never thought we we were there to run week to week, and we did not see uh, the demise of territories coming. You know, just didn't think it would happen, and so we didn't have a lot of these tapes to to do these stud stables videos with because a lot of that was during Continental Wrestling days. Some of it was even back in the Southeastern Wrestling days uh, in Pensacola. So, but now. I found these tapes. I've got tapes, and uh, and within within the next month, they're going to be able. Fans are going to be able to buy the what I call the lost territory. Continental is kind of like the lost territory. Uh, never was a lot of publicity about it, uh, and probably we probably created more talent in southeastern wrestling and continental wrestling than. Maybe in the history of business. I mean, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan came from us. Uh, uh, Tonky Tonk Man came from us. Uh, Arn Anderson came from us. Uh, just it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake came from us. I mean, we can just go on. Uh, David Schultz. Uh, you know, we just we created such a tremendous amount of great young talent that went on to become huge stars and we 
so now I've got these program again. I have located a lot of these programs, a lot of these shows, and we're going to be selling the DVDs of Continental Wrestling, the entire programs from the 85, 86, 87s. Uh, and uh, and I'd be able now to take that stud stable stuff and, and maybe do what this person is recommending here, asking me why I've never done it before. I can create the DVD set now. And, uh, and I would love to do it because, gosh, I really love those days. I love that stud stable stuff that I had going. And especially I like the era in which I, I wore the top hat and the cane. And, you know, I was, I was like, I hated myself. I was so good at it. I actually, when I watched the programs on the weekend, I would go, oh, God, I hate you, man. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was really doing a great job with it, and I'd love to be able to create a set, uh, a big DVD set of uh, just stud stable matches. And I had some great talent. Gosh, I had Humongous, which was Sid Vicious, and it turned into be uh, Van Camp. Uh, uh, I had Arn in there, and I had Jerry Stubbs in there, uh, Mr. Olympia in there. I had I had Rob. I had Jimmy. I had uh, Boomer Lynch. Uh, I just had. You have not named kept... a single Armstrong yet, and I think uh, yeah. maybe there's a problem here. Yeah. Well, actually, they weren't part of my stable. Oh, that's true. You know? That's true. They weren't part of my stable. I mean, I had what I had is I had all these great, tremendous heels, and I had the greatest wrestling family in America to put them against the Armstrongs. I had four sons, actually, three. And uh, Brian didn't start until later, but I had Bob and his three sons, and uh, it was a it was a great combination. What a combination it turned out to be! There I am, uh, with this top hat and cane and strutting around there. I got tremendous wrestlers in the ring, Jimmy Golden, and I just I mean, just I can't even think of all of them. I apologize to people. Uh, Vol- Volkov, Volkov. Uh, the uh, Russian kid that I that I used a lot. I mean, I just had fabulous guys working in the stud stable, and I threw them in there against the Armstrongs night after night. It worked fantastic for us. It just was a phenomenal deal. And uh, yeah, question. I guess answer to the question is yes. Now that I have my hands on these tapes. Uh, and sometime down the road, yeah, I will probably do a stud stable DVD set. Just show highlights of matches, uh, maybe entire matches. Uh, we've got tremendous numbers and uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of programming now. Stay tuned for that news. That is optimistic news for tape collectors out there. But Ron, one final question here this week. This is from Carl Stern of WhenItWasCool.com. On May 2nd, 1987, you wrestled for Vern Gagne at Super Clash 2 in San Francisco, California. Under a mask as the terrorist. Your partner was Brian Nobbs of the Nasty Boys. Under a mask as the mercenary. You were against Jimmy Superfly Snooker and Russ Francis. How did this match come about? And what were you doing in San Francisco? Wow. Good one. <laughs> Jeez, man. See, I say I love these questions. I mean, they've got knowledgeable fans. I mean, I'm under a mask, and how does he find out about this? I mean, obviously, if you see me under a mask, you're probably going to know who I am. I'm basically, I don't, I don't look like everybody else, that's for sure. Uh, and Brian Nobbs, uh, I'll be honest with you, Brian, at this point, I didn't know who Brian Nobbs was. And he's going to go on be one of the nasty boys. 
obviously, right? He's going to become a star. Uh, and I'm in the ring against two bona fide stars, uh, Superfly. Everybody knows who Snooker is and knows what he's capable of doing. And Russ Francis was a former football player, if I'm not incorrect about this. Yeah. I think he played pro football. Oh, yeah. And I wrestled for his dad in Hawaii, Ed Francis. So I got history with Francis's family. Uh, it's my first time to ever meet Snooker. Uh, never worked against Snooker. And my first time to meet Brian Nobbs. I don't have any idea that Brian Nobbs is wearing a mask and that he's going to wrestle someday as the Nasty Boys and he's not going to wear a mask. I wore a mask because I'm friends at this point with Vern. And kind of the way that all went down is, there's few, it's 1987, and there's not a lot of territories that are doing well at this point. Vince is starting to come in and, and bring his guys that he's buying from you or taking from you and bringing them back and putting them against your operation and highlighting them after you've built them, which is a pretty bad way of doing business, in my opinion. So there's Vern left, there's Jerry Jarrett left. Uh, we're left at Continental. There are a few other companies. Uh, you got Dallas. You got Dallas, and Dallas is doing a little business with Jerry Jarrett. Uh, so they're left. You've got Crockett and, and the Florida operation. Uh, they're they're, they're kind of doing their own thing over there. And Ganya invites me in 87 to come to Minneapolis and sit down with Jerry and him and uh, – and the Dallas people. And we, um, we talk about how to survive. How, wh what can we do to keep going and make it work? And I'm at this point, this is uh, pretty much almost late, late 87, middle of 1987. Uh, I'm going to be totally retired by the middle of 88. I got maybe one more year left before I just hang it up and go in a different direction entirely. Vern says, while I'm there, he says, Ron, would you like, I, I, I want to put you on my super clash. He's already into San Francisco. Obviously, uh, this is super clash too, so they've already had one. So he he asked me if I would like to work on that card. And, and I'd been to San Francisco on a couple of occasions. It's a beautiful part of the country. And when he asked me that, uh, I'd been, I'd probably gone, I used to go periods of 18 months sometimes without a week vacation. And I wanted to, I needed a break. And I remember telling him, yeah, I'll work that show for you, you know. And I went out and worked it on a Friday night, but I actually flew in there the Friday before. I spent one week in the San Francisco area. I did the wine country. I did the Pebble Beach. I did the... You know, I just did the tourist routine. I just, uh, I would, I did the the big trees. I mean, uh, you know, uh, all of the all of the things that you do when you're in San Francisco and you're looking for stuff to do. So I turned that night of wrestling into a week's vacation for my wife and I, and uh, we had a great time out there in San Francisco, and and had a great match. You can imagine if you look at these names, these four guys right here. These are some guys that can get it done. And we, we had a great match that night. And nobody knew who I was. And nobody knew who, who Brian Nobbs was because he's under a mask. 
And uh, you got Snooker and, and Russ Francis, and obviously neither one of those guys are wearing a mask. And we go out there and tear the house down in San Francisco in uh, 1987. On the topic of when promoters tried to get together and fight against Vince, famously there was Pro Wrestling USA, which started with Vern and Crockett and various other people helping out. Memphis was involved for a while. That fell apart. You weren't really involved with that. Why? Well, I'd kind of already begin to get out. Uh, in 1987, uh, we sold Continental. We sold Continental to David Woods in, out of Montgomery that owned the television station in Montgomery. And I ba- went left and went back to Knoxville. Uh, we had Knoxville had kind of been a part of that when, uh, when we made the arrangement. Uh, but Knoxville was basically uh, a separate entity to, to, to Continental. So I went up there and opened up in Knoxville and ran Knoxville and Johnson City and those areas a little for about six months. And then David Woods came to me and said, uh, Ron, I'd like to buy your, your, your uh, USA. I called that USA Championship Wrestling. He said, I'd like to buy your USA Championship Wrestling. So I sold it because... I could really, by then, we're in 1988, I could see that this is not going to, this is not going to change, uh, that what's happening with Vince is going to eventually lead to the end of territories. And, uh, and I just, rather than fight the battle, and I had had really 20 excellent years in the business, uh, three or four of it as a wrestler and the rest of it as a promoter and a wrestler, I'd done very well for myself. I'd saved some money, and I said, you know, I think it's going to end. I believe it's going to go under. I don't believe anybody's going to end up beating him or staying alive. And it didn't make any sense to take your money and throw it, uh, throw it in the toilet, so to speak, because it's. It, it, I did not see there being a light at the end of the tunnel, and and I chose to to to, to get out at that point. So I sat around for a year. And uh, good Lord blessed me with another game, <laughs> another sport, and that turned things around for me. And I went on to, to have great success in, in, in another totally different uh, area and arena, basically. Vince begins going national in 83. By 84, it's full-blown. Everyone sees what he's doing. 85, you start Continental. 87, you start talking with Vern and, of course, Jerry Jarrett and anyone else who's still active and willing to work together. Not everyone was willing to work together. Crockett really seemed to just want to do his own thing, which may have been to his detriment. I don't know. But by 88, you're out. 83, it starts. 88, you're out. At what point did you come to the realization that you guys can't win? Not you exactly, but that no one's going to be able to win against Vince. Probably about uh, 87, early 87. It became pretty obvious. Uh, we had probably more success against Vince than probably most people did. Uh, we were pretty smart about how to take care of business. And the first time he brought his major show to Birmingham, uh, he booked it across the freeway from us. We were in Boutwell and right across the freeway, uh, which is Interstate 65 there. On the other side of the freeway is the convention center. It's a it's a eighteen thousand seat building. And we're in a nine thousand seat building, and uh, so we saw that coming, and uh, we decided, you know, let's let's compete with this son of a gun. Let's do a two ring battle royal, and uh, add some guys to the card, 
and dropped the price. And we always, for two ring battle royals, we always raised the price. We lowered the price. And and Vince's first time in there, he brought Hulk, who had been with us. He'd started with us. He brought Schultz, who had started with us. He brought Tonky Tonk, who had started with us. He brought Brick Cake, who had started with us. I mean, he brought his whole package that he could to work against us. And that night in Birmingham, they came over. I didn't know how well they did. I didn't want to even even go across the street to see. And they came over, came in the back door because they'd all worked in that building before, most of them. And they, uh, and they were just amazed. We sold out, and they had less than 2,000. We had 9,000. They had less than 2,000. They came in the back door. And uh, I remember Hogan coming to me and saying, Ron, God, he goes, uh, he goes, we're doing great business. He goes, nobody's competing with us. But he goes, y'all blew us away. He goes, look at your house. He goes, wow. <laughs> he was like, ah, dang, man. He, he, his mouth was, you know, his tongue was hanging out like, goodness gracious, how did they do this? So, you know, I mean, we figured out ways to work against them and compete with them that we probably did better than most people in, in competing. The Pro Wrestling USA I brought up earlier was actually an earlier attempt in 84 and 85 to compete against Vince. They actually ran in New Jersey at the Meadowlands, which is an arena he had run in. They actually did Bruno San Martino's 1981 retirement there, and it's right outside of New York. So they tried to run in his backyard using guys like Sergeant Slaughter and Bob Backlund, who had been big stars there, and now we're on the outs with Vince. You weren't really involved with that, though, were you? No. Now that was USA, and when I went to Knoxville, I just I took the name of USA. I just called it USA Championship Wrestling. Had nothing to do with me, and I did not. I did have nothing to do with that event up there in New York. Uh, wasn't a part of that. Uh, but uh, you know, after about eighty-seven, you know, answer to your question about eighty-seven, I could see that you know this this thing is going to have a really bad ending for everybody. And I might as well go ahead and get out early and, and walk away with some of the money I'd made rather than reinvest it or throw it away trying to compete with, uh, with something that's going to be very difficult to compete with, obviously. And I felt like I made the right decision. I think you did too, unfortunately, because I wish you know your product of wrestling would have continued, although you may have lost a lot of money. But I would have selfishly enjoyed that. But I have to ask you, you have put this time at early 87, famously, of course, early 87 is WrestleMania 3, Pontiac Silverdome, a reported 93,000 plus fans for Hogan versus Andre. Do you see that? Where do you watch it? And what impact does seeing that spectacle have on you? Uh, I didn't watch it. I never saw it. Never saw the match. I have seen little bits and pieces, snips of it here and there. Uh, I made a point not to watch it. I did not want to watch it because I didn't want to. I, I was in the business and I was committed to it at that point, And I did not want to lower my expectations. And uh, I tried not to watch any of his stuff. Uh, I watched a few minutes of his programs. And what I was impressed with was the production quality of it. I was never impressed with the actual matches very often. And I didn't see enough of them to... To, to really be a, a, a critic one way or the other. I didn't watch it much. I just didn't watch it. I did not watch it. 
And uh, even when I got out, I never watched it. I have never, I'll bet you, I have never seen two hours of, uh, of Vince's product. Wow, come on. In my life. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Never watched it. Never was interested in it. Uh, did not, uh, did not want to see it. I just didn't want to see it. Uh, I, I just felt so rotten about how he did it, how he managed to do it, and why. That's that's my question for Vince. If I could ever ask him why, why is it that you wanted to have it all? You know, because there were so many great people involved in the wrestling business at that point in the 87s and, and the 87, the 88, you know, in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s. It was a magnificent machine that, you know, people say, gosh, uh, Vince has been so hugely successful. But if you really, Brian, Brian, if you really take the numbers, for instance, just pick the 70s as an example, or the 60s, whatever decade you want to, uh, prior to, say, 83, and go back and start adding up the numbers of people that, re- that went to wrestling matches on a Friday night in St. Louis and in Dallas and in uh, Atlanta and in uh, the big cities across the country and all up into Oregon, everywhere, and you add up those numbers, I'll guarantee you if you added up the television audiences that they would, they would surpass his numbers of today. Oh, no, without question. Back then, there were more fans, and there were also more people watching the television shows. The big difference is the money. He has less people attending his events and watching his events now, but that smaller audience will pay more money than fans back then ever dreamed about. Back then, yeah. you could bring your family to a wrestling event. Now, if you want to take your family to a wrestling event, it's going to cost you a few hundred dollars. Yes, it's it's, a, it's an expensive product. It's an expensive product for sure. And gosh, I, I'll be honest with you. You know... What little I've watched of uh, of Raw and and then then what is SmackDown? I guess it's SmackDown and Raw or whatever they are. Gosh, I don't know who puts that stuff together, but it's crap. You know, I mean, to me, it's like God mighty. I mean, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. I would been I would have been embarrassed to produce that product back in the seventies and eighties. It wouldn't have flown anywhere. And, you know, it ain't flying now. It's not flying now either. I mean, their, their crowds and their, their businesses, it, it, they're, not, they're not knocking it knocking it out of the park. They're barely in the park anymore, in my opinion. What they have right now is they have that television rights deal. That's it. I mean, because that could support everything. If you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars for the rights to air your show, you don't have to worry about the house shows so much. Yeah, and then at some point, Brian, uh, what's going to happen when uh, when they're willing to pay that kind of money? There's going to be a time I predict in which others, other television entities, are going to be willing to give wrestling a chance again, and they're not going to be able to buy Vince because Vince has got the major sale. He's already sold his product. And if the right people come along and they were to put together the right type of show again, they were to train talent differently than they're training them now, and they tried to bring the product back as it was in the 80s and 70s, I think he's in for a struggle. I think that, that uh, wrestling is, 
He has kept it wrestling alive, and now he's got it in a position to where they're paying money for it, and I think it may open the door for people to start making a run at him at some point. We can only hope so, and what an inspirational note to end this show on. Of course, you can like the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. The page is Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. You can also follow the Stud on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Don't forget with the Studcast, if you subscribe on iTunes, please leave a five-star rating and write us positive and write a positive review. It really does help the show out. Of course, to also remember, you can go to tnstud.com for all studcasts. You can leave some comments. If you want to leave some fan comments, you could do it there. There's also a fantastic photo gallery, the stud store, and much more, tnstud.com. Don't forget, patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com for only $2.99. You get the super studcast as well as the rest of the story. Check that out, patreon.com slash studcast. Ron, let's pick a winner. Which question? is your winner this week. Oh, jeez, man. This really phenomenal questions. It, it's really making it, making it difficult here. I'm going to take Carl, Carl Stearns. I guess I'm going to take that, that uh, super clash in San Francisco. Uh, you know, because, you know, I really didn't even remember, you know, when you brought this up, Brian Nobbs, I did not remember that Brian Nobbs was even in the ring with me that night. I didn't even recognize him. Did you remember that you were the terrorist? Yes, I remember wearing the mask, and I remember wrestling as the terrorist. But I don't remember my partner being Brian Nobbs, and that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, he he was such a young kid, and and, uh, I'd never heard of him. I had no idea where he was going to go in his in his future, and so and what a tag match that is right there. That's a phenomenal tag match right there, and I do remember the match tore him up. I mean, we had a tremendous match, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, say that Carl Stern's the winner for this one. And where are we going next week on the Studcast? Well, next week Rob's coming to Florida, and uh, Rob's going to make an appearance. He's going to actually stay and hang out with me for about six weeks, and he's going to take a break out of Tennessee. And we kind of make a deal. I say, you come to Florida and spend some time, and I'm going to reciprocate. I will come to Tennessee once you go back, and I'll spend some time. So we're going to talk basically about some of the guys, which is tremendous group of wrestlers that we're going to wrestle against when he's there for that six-week period of time. I think I count, uh, from looking at my little sheet that I have, I believe we work uh, 40 nights out of 46 uh, that he's there. Uh, we're we're working steadily, and uh, we're working with some great talent. Florida is beginning to reach this phase in which when I went in there originally toward the end of 1970, we're doing well. Uh, but in 71, we start to pick up. Things start to get bigger. Jack is getting over there. Briscoe's getting over big time. And uh, it's all changing. By 71, late 71, starting into 72, some of the greatest talent in America and the world is going to come there. And uh, Florida is on its road, on a path, in these early 70s here to becoming a monster territory. And uh, 
we're going to start with Rob and I starting uh, doing a lot of tag matches and uh, and uh, just uh, I just uh, want to thank fans too for just the continuing to follow us and, and the, the tremendous uh, numbers that we have and and the people that are enjoying the program uh, for the patrons who are supporting with uh, Super Stud Cast and just it's just a pleasure to to be a part of it, Brian. It's uh, it's it's humbling, man. It's humbling that. You know, uh, we're just uh, we're really uh, we're really touching a lot of lives, and that that's a that's a great thing. Uh, I feel honored. Uh, people just the comments are fabulous, and I just am honored to be able to have the opportunity the good Lord's give me to sit here in this seat and do what I do. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>